Good morning, everybody. Welcome to worship, CBC. I am Richard Palmer. I'm the pastor of Equip here at CBC. And uh, uh, if you're new here, I would like to give you a special welcome and hope that you find this to be a meaningful time in, uh, of worship for you. Um, I'm wondering, uh, can anybody guess what today's topic is based upon a cartoon that I'm going to ask to uh, be posted? I notice only the women are laughing. <laughs> What's up with that? Yeah, okay, maybe we need to separate and we need to do a men's sermon on this and women. But we've been in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, it's called Stronger, and it's all about the, the personal disciplines that uh, Christians are to incorporate into their daily life in order for them to grow uh, as a person spiritually and to uh, keep a strong relationship. Uh, with Jesus. And uh, we started out with the study, uh, the importance of study, and we're talking about the study of God's Word. And then we uh, uh, took a hard look at the power of prayer and uh, followed that up with meditation, uh, being able to take some time and to think on some of God's truths. Because, you know, compared to God, none of us are the brightest penny in the universe. And then we went on to, uh, you know, having some alone time with Dad so to speak, uh, called solitude. And we need to pull ourselves out of the busy uh, uh, routine of life and just be alone, be quiet for a while, and just sort of figure out who God really is to us at that particular time. And then last week, Kevin Barnhill did a wonderful message on uh, the importance of, of Christian service. Today um, is the topic of confession. And I'm going to be real honest with you. I, I'm a little... Uh, afraid of, of this topic. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in, I was looking uh, at television, the media, uh, radio, uh, uh, movies, and online, uh, and I've come to the conclusion that when it comes to this business of confession, it's not very popular. Um, what I'm talking about is uh, there are these television shows where people stand up in front of the camera and they accuse each other of, you know, really bad behavior and they're screaming and they're yelling and the accusations and, you know, it gets to be violent at times and it's just kind of hard to believe and other times, you know, there are these courtroom scenes where the, you know, the, the, the audience is quiet and they're just in the background uh, and somebody is accusing somebody of something else legally, so on and so forth. And of course you go online and you can immediately see that there are celebrities all over the place being accused of bad behavior and politicians that are being accused of harassment and bad behavior it just never seems to end. And um, for, the, for the most part, I don't see anybody really exercising the discipline of confession. In fact, what I see is uh, kind of an unspoken rule I'm going to call it today the prime directive because it just seems like no matter what happens, who it, who it is, who says it, whatever the circumstances, uphold and obey the prime directive. And the prime directive can be summed up in two words. Admit nothing. Admit nothing. We see in our world that some people are rewarded when they obey the prime directive. We see people who are confronted with their wrongdoing and they obey the prime directive. I think it's a challenge for the entire world. And it certainly then means it's a challenge for us. So I'm praying here, and for those of you that will do so, pray for me that what I say to you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You see, the whole reason for confession was the appearance of sin. 
Remember now, God created all things, right? God created all things, all living creatures, including Adam and Eve, and he made them perfectly. But he gave Adam and Eve a power. He gave them the ability to make choices. And their relationship with God was perfect. We can't even begin to imagine that now in this life, but we will. But they had that, at least until their choices led them to not believe God. And their not believing God led them to disobey God. And the moment they disobeyed God, that perfect spiritual relationship was severed. And with that disconnect, spiritually with God, appeared what the Bible calls sin. Disobedience of God. Opposition to God's will is sin. In opposition to God's ways is sin. Opposition to God's very nature is sin. So immediately, what appears? After the appearance of sin, the appearance of the prime directive. Think about it. In the garden, the sin that was brought by Adam and Eve. God goes to Adam and he says, Adam, what's going on? And Adam immediately upheld the prime directive and threw Eve under the bus. There wasn't buses at that time, but if there had been buses, she would have been under it. Then he said, it was, you know that woman you made? She's the one that gave me the fruit. I ate. What a lame excuse. He goes to Eve. And Eve, she upholds the prime directive. She says, well, it was the serpent. He tempted me. He lied. He's a deceiver. Like, he's supposed to play fair. You see, we have had that prime directive. It's not just on TV and in the movies and, you know, uh, online and in our world today. It's been in the world ever since that first one. It is a response to wrongdoing, but it's not what we're going to look at today. It's not confession. So as we do that, let's just take a look and call sin what it is. It is going against God's will, going against God's ways. It is basically disobedience of God. And the Bible says that as much as we may want to deny it, we want to downplay it, as much as we want to obey the prime directive, God hates it. And here's the rub. When we respond to our sin by obeying the prime directive and not admitting it, we are actually responding to our sin with more sin. I'm going to say that again. When we respond to our sin by obeying the prime directive and not admitting it, we are, in fact, responding to our sin with more sin. That's the reason for confession. That's the reason confession of sin even exists. That's the power of confession. It is not to get rid of the sin, to have our sin basket clean, so that when the day we die or when Jesus comes back, we'll look in there and we're acceptable because it's all gone. We confess for something that's even more important than that. Don't just stop at getting rid of sin because confession is what renews your relationship with God. It restores the strength and the joy of your relationship with God. That's why there's confession. 
we're going to take a look at what confession really is and see if we can learn some things. I'd like to have you go to Psalm 32. And if you need a Bible, would you just please raise your hand? And we've got ushers that will provide a Bible for you. And for those of you that maybe don't know where the book of Psalm is, as a last resort, go to page 333. As you're looking for that, let me just give you some background here. This was a psalm written by King David. David was the apple of God's eye. Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. If only God would have ever thought that of me or of you. He had a very, very strong relationship with the Lord. There was a mutual love and respect. And... David was revered and he was given great blessings by God. So we're going to take a look at the first five verses of this psalm and I want you to scratch your head and I want you to think, what, what is he talking about here if, if we're talking about a guy who wrote this who was a man after God's own heart? Let me read this for you, verses 1 through 5. Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. I'd like to have you hover over verses 3 and 4 because 3 and 4 is at the point in David's life when he decided to obey the prime directive. It says, when I Refused to confess. My sin, my body, wasted away. And I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand, meaning God's hand, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. He was miserable. He was miserable. And I would, I would say that he maybe didn't know exactly why he was so miserable. Physically, he was wasting away. Probably had no appetite. He didn't want to do anything. You know, one of the signs of psychological depression. Psychologically, I'm sure he was unstable at times. Emotionally, I, he was in a dark place emotionally. Probably very discouraged. Probably thought very little of himself. And he was, think of this, he's asking why he was having these feelings. And then, of course, the, the most important, at least to me, is his spiritual relationship with God had been severely weakened. You can, you can sense that he's feeling isolated, alone, maybe even abandoned. This was his life. Many theologians believe for up to a year. So here is the man after God's own heart doing terrible things. And letting it rot every aspect of himself and his life. Because he was trying to obey the prime directive. 
Now, I'm hoping you're asking yourself, my gosh, what did he do? Well, if you go to 2 Samuel, not now, but in 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12, is what David did to warrant writing these verses. I can maybe take four minutes. I can do this in four minutes. I've practiced it. Let's see if I can do this. First of all, David should have been on the battlefield with his men. Instead, he was at home in the palace taking a break. He was on the rooftop of the palace and he spied a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba and she was beautiful. He immediately lusted after her, commanded that she be brought to the palace, whereupon they had a sexual relationship. He impregnated her. His reaction to, making, or to impregnating Bathsheba was to hide it from her husband, Uriah, who was a member of the armed forces. So he got an idea. I'm going to bring Uriah home. I'm going to offer him an R&R for the weekend. That way when Bathsheba starts to show, everybody but me and Bathsheba will think that Uriah is the father. Are you with me? Uriah took the high road and said... I can't in good conscience spend my time at home when I know my men are out on the field. So he spent the night in Jerusalem with soldiers. David then tried it a second time, only this time he tried to get him drunk, thinking if I get him drunk, he'll do what I want. Uriah, even drunk, did the right thing. And it was the same scenario. He spent the night with soldiers. David got desperate, and so he wrote a note, wrote a note to one of his lieutenants, the lieutenant's name was Joab. And in this note, he said, I want you to put Uriah in the front line. Here's Uriah. He's taking a sealed envelope that spells his own doom. Taking it to Joab. Joab obeys his commander-in-chief, puts Uriah in the front line. Uriah is killed in battle. After an appropriate period of mourning, David brings the pregnant Bathsheba into the palace and makes her his wife. Time goes by... And David seems to be fine with this. Until one day, a prophet by the name of Nathan comes to him and says, The Lord has really prompted me to come and to say what I'm about to say to you, king. He says, okay. He says, let me tell you a story about a super wealthy man and a super poor man. The super poor man had only one blessing from God, and it was a beautiful, perfect, gorgeous, cuddly little lamb. And this guy loved this lamb. It was far beyond just being a pet. It ate from the plate, drank from the cup. The rich man one day had super important people come to be his guests. And instead of going to his vast flocks and his absolutely numerous herds to get something to serve to his people, he goes to that poor man and he grabs that little lamb right out of his hands and he goes off and he kills it and he serves it to his guest. And when Nathan got to that point in the story, David blew his stack. He said, this guy should be killed right now. And Nathan looked at him and said, you are that man, David. And David looked at him and for the first time started to think that the, there's a possibility that I've been looking at my actions wrong. What did he do? He was lazy to begin with. Then he lusted after Bathsheba. Then he abused his power and had her brought to him. They had an adulterous affair. He impregnated her, and his response was to be deceitful, to lie, to cover it up, and finally he capped it all off with murder. But you see, to David's way of thinking, 
He had rights. After all, he was a king. It wasn't being lazy. You know, I'm the leader. I need to stay in shape. I need to be refreshed. I have to make clear decisions, and I can't do that when I don't have the rest and relaxation that I need. Or the lust. What's wrong with that? I'm just being a guy. I've got all these women in my palace already. What's one more? I'm king. I have that authority. I can do this legally. What about the, the, uh, uh, the, the lying about it? Oh, I'm just making sure that I keep peace in the kingdom. You know, I've got, a, I've got a, a, an image to uphold. If my image starts to erode, I lose the ability to lead properly. What about the murder? Oh, well, who's to say Uriah wouldn't have been killed that same day anyway? These are rationalizations that could have come to David's mind that absolutely exonerated him from any wrongdoings. And you, you notice that every time David would perhaps say, well, I've got the right to do this because I'm king, he failed to think about the way God looked at it. And when God looked at what David did, David, God didn't call it a right, he called it a wrong. The things that David did, he rationalized by himself in his own world of rules. And he came up with a good excuse for everything that he did that was wrong. He failed to include God in his relationship. He failed to remember his close relationship with God and to call upon God to help him with these decisions. He was focused in his own world, run by his own rules. That was his sin. That was this first sin that the Lord was trying to bring to David's attention. Do you see how that first sin was like the first domino? It led to being lazy. It led to lusting. It led to adultery. It led to deception. It led to lying and covering it up. And it led to murder. And not only does the Garden of Eden tell us that sin is in us, but David is showing us that sin also in us fools us after we sin by keeping a prime directive and failing to admit it, by giving good excuses why we did it. Ways thinking that keep us from confession. And here's the third thing that sin does that requires confession. And that is sin spreads, church. It's like a virus. It's like the flu right now. Have you got it? Are you going to get it? Who are you going to get it from? Who are you going to give it to? We have no idea. It spreads to an extent we, we cannot guess. We don't know what direction it came from. We don't know what direction it's going to. But it infects all of us. There's not a relationship on planet Earth today that is not got sin. David's actions, think about this. David's actions affected this woman, her marriage. David destroyed that marriage. David destroyed that family. By the way, the child died. David's ability to lead was compromised in ways that David never knew, we will never know, because he was at the top of the pyramid. 
he was responsible for an entire nation. Sin spreads. Sin has consequences. Sin absolutely requires confession. But there's hope. Look at it. Look at verse 5. Finally. I want to stop right there. How many times have you done everything possible and done the right thing only when there was nothing else left to do? We do that a lot. And David did the same thing. I'm sure David found excuses in his own heart and his own mind. I'm sure he deceived himself into thinking that what he had done was right because of who he was here on earth. But the Lord worked in his heart and finally, after everything else, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. This word sins is extremely important because before David came to realize what he had actually done, he would not have called his lying, lust, adultery, laziness, murder, he would not have called them sin. Because he has good reason for doing those things, don't you know? It was only when God convicted him and when David started to look at those same actions as being from God's viewpoint, God's perspective, that he now labeled what he was doing. He put a name to what he was doing, and the name that he put to that was disobedience to God, sin. This is a landmark moment for each and every one of us when we can go from downplaying or denying our sin to really understanding that what we've done is disobedience to God, we've made the first step toward confession. And he goes on to say, I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you, you forgave me. Three words that most of us long for throughout our lives, time after time. You forgave the guilt, the weight of it becomes crushing, debilitating. It ruins even the best moments of our lives. And the only thing we can do is to confess it. And David shows us what some of those parts are. Shows us that confession, if you bring up the... Uh, well. I'm sorry, go back to verses 1 and 2. Here are the results that come from him saying, you forgave me. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record the Lord has, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And what David shows us in these five verses is that for confession has at least three parts. And 
The first part is that we need to admit that what we have done is sin. We then need to ask that the Lord forgives us. And we need to also avoid it in the future. And you can see those three in these five verses. You remember that in verse 3 and 4, that it was a great barrier for David to just simply get past the miserable results of obeying the prime directive. And you can see that in verse number 5, that he finally admitted it and asked that it be forgiven, that it be taken away. And when he talks about the joy of living a life in complete honesty, he's talking about a restored relationship with God where people can be honest with one another and with God and therefore can avoid that sin in the future. But I'm not, I'm not naive. I realize that if you're like me, I read this psalm and it frightens me, it scares me because there are a couple of parts of this that, that are very challenging and I'm going to be real honest with you. Are, are you having a problem with any one of these three things? For instance, if, if you have a problem admitting it, it might be because you're not including God in your relationship with God when you make daily decisions in life. If you were to take God's perspective from what you do in life, you're going to avoid sin in many, many cases. Not completely. But you need to take a look at the big picture and, and include your God who wants to have a relationship with you, not just one day a week or a few hours a week, but all the time. Maybe admitting your sin is your greatest challenge, what scares you the most. Or maybe it's asking forgiveness. It's very difficult to ask forgiveness if you're not humble. If you have pride in your heart, if you have self-centeredness, if you have a reputation that you need to protect, if you are concerned about what people think about you, that second one may be the most challenging. Or it might be the third one. It might be trying to avoid that sin in the future, especially when you are suffering from what we call habitual sin, re reoccurring sin, chronic behavior. Maybe you're discouraged to even begin to admit your sin because you know that when you get to that part about, well, I've got to avoid it, and you're saying to the Lord, you know, Lord, this is the 900th time I've come to you with this. I am tired of doing that. You must be even more tired. But our God will not be that way. Our God will not be the one that says, how many times have you come to me with this? And nothing ever changes. It's the same old, same old. Where's the progress? Where, where, where's the, the, the energy I see for you? Where's the urge? Where's the need? Where's the motivation to change? You know what? I've had it. I've had it up to here. No more. That's not God. That's us. That's a human characteristic. That's not God. God is faithful and just. God 
will respond to your confession the same way every time. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Here's the promise. Here's the first part. This is meant to get your attention. If we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. Let me say that another way. It may sound a little harsh, but I'm sorry. You know what? If we're the kind that says, I am going to uphold and obey the prime directive, I'm not going to admit anything. What John is saying is, Richard, if you do that, you're full. And you know who's fooling you, Richard? You. And you can't blame this on other people or on God or on the world or on Satan. You're fooling you. And you are living a lie. That should get your attention for the next verse, which says, but, I love but, if we confess, if we admit it, if we ask forgiveness, and if we ask the Holy Spirit who's in us to help us to avoid it in the future, he is faithful and just. That word faithful, I believe, speaks especially to those of you that are afraid of avoiding future sin. Because what that is saying is, you can go to him the 800th time, and he will respond exactly the same way he did the first time. Not like a human being who's been fed up, who's had it, who wants to just dump you, throw you under the bus, and leave you. He will always be there. We need to realize that our God is not human. Our God is God. He is perfect. He is faithful each and every time. And each and every time he will be just. It's not going to fluctuate. He's not going to say after the 900th time, well, you know, I think we're going to have to put some sanctions on you, buddy. Or maybe we're going to have to put you on, on, on parole. Or, or there's got to be some consequences here because you're not showing any difference. No. That's not God. God is just. He is righteous. He is something that we can't really wrap our minds around. And John is trying to show us that truth the best way that he can. And here's the best way that I can. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, one day in school, I broke four windows in one day. The, the first two was a beautiful shot to right field that was, you know, when you hit that baseball just right, there's no resistance to the bat. It's like you're just taking a free swing. And that thing just kept going and going, and I was just, yes, yes, right until it went through the double-pane glass in the study hall window of the high school building. A teacher comes out with the ball, not one of my favorite teachers either, says, okay, who did it? Well, duh, everybody on the playground turned their head and looked at you-know-who, and you-know-who stood there with you-know-what. Huh. That was my first trip to the superintendent's office that day. Then at noon hour, we, we played, every noon, we played a ball tag. And you couldn't touch the grass or the gravel or the dirt. You could go on anything else. And so we were on the concrete. And we had a lot of windows that were low to the ground. And one of the low windows had the screen kind of pulled out away from the frame. And one of my friends was in the window. And I was through the ball to, you know, make him it. And he, uh, I missed him. And it hit the window. Screen did nothing except 
help break the window. So that was my third window of the day and got me a second trip to the superintendent's office. Then, uh, believe it or not, at uh, recess that afternoon, we, uh, we played more ball tag. Um, yeah, that's really stupid. And everybody was lined up uh, to the entrance to the grade school building, double door entrance, and I was about 15 yards away, and I drop kicked the, the soccer ball at everybody in line, and I hit it too hard, and uh, it hit this really nice little square window pane that was above the double doors. Bam! It just shattered that window. All of the, of the glass shards went into the entrance, inside entrance to the uh, grade school building, and the soccer ball stuck right there in the window. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't thinking this at the time, but, you know, I could have spent probably the rest of my life trying to do that again and never, never be able to do it again. I, I really didn't know what to do. It was one of those things where you don't know whether to spit or wind your watch. And I, basically what I did is I just turned around and I walked myself to the superintendent's office. <laughs> um, but that wasn't the worst part because I had to, I, I, you know, once, once I got through the superintendent's third visit, I had to think about the fact that, oh yeah, I still have to go home. And I was not gonna, I was not gonna confess. Uh, I grew up in a pretty strict home and I uh, obeyed the prime directive. But it just killed me. Uh, supper was horrible, I didn't talk, couldn't make eye contact, spent the night in my room. Uh, next day was mostly the same old, same old. Uh, hated school that day, uh, thinking about having to go home again. By the third day, by the third day, um, the, the, the guilt of it all had started to really far outweigh any of the fear I had of what was going to happen to me once I admitted it. So I went and I, I told my parents what I'd done, told my mom. And my mom says, well, I'm really glad that you finally admitted it. And I looked at her, what? She said, oh yeah, Mr. Karkowski called me three days ago, the day you did it. And I'm going, oh. So I felt really bad because, you know, I wanted to confess then, but I passed up the chance. But she's, she let me off. Though. She, I'm really glad that you finally admitted it. There for a while, I was afraid that you are never going to say anything about it. That's what confession is for us, church. You're not going to go to God with anything that he doesn't already know. I mean, going to confession is not going to be a press conference where you're going to bring God up to snuff as to what you've been up to since the last time you were together. It's not, it's not for God's sake. It's for your sake. It's for your sake to learn a way of life. If you learn to admit and recognize what you're doing is sin, what you're doing automatically is you're including God into your life. You're doing things with God and your relationship with God in mind. If you're asking forgiveness, you're, you're humble and you're staying humble. And if you're trying to avoid that sin in the future with the help of the Holy Spirit who's in you, that means that sin is decreasing in your life. And that means that godliness is increasing in your life. And you know what the Bible calls that? Sanctification. We call it here becoming more and more like Jesus. You see how confession leads to all of these wonderful, daily, regular habits. That's why we do it. And this John text is meant to basically show us and give us the confidence that no matter how many times we go to our Lord and ask forgiveness, that we will get it. You know, the only reason I had the guts to go to the superintendent the third time was because 
I was assured that he was going to be fair with me and treat me that third time the way he did the first two. And that's what we need when we go to our Lord. And John is saying, when you go to the Lord, he is going to treat you fairly and consistently every time. What you need to do is to admit it. Ask forgiveness and ask his help to avoid it. What about the privilege that we have every once in a while when, when, when we have the ability or we have the power to restore relationships ourselves? What about when we have the honor to restore the joy in a relationship with one another? That's what's so, so also equally important. And it's the same instruction that, that John gives us in verses 8 and 9. He says, if someone confesses to you, then you are to be faithful to Jesus Christ and to forgive. Peter went to Jesus and said, how many times should we forgive one another? Seven? Peter thought he was being really generous because the Jews were taught that you were to forgive three times and then you didn't have to anymore. Jesus says, how about seven times 70? Meaning, numberless. Every time. That means if you have someone that comes to you and admits wrongdoing to you and it's hurt their relationship, you are to follow faithfully your Lord and Savior that's, who says, forgive them because your God forgave you. So, how many times should we forgive one another? Every time. How many times? How many times? Every time. We should never get tired of going and confessing our sins to God. And we should never be tired of forgiving one another. Ephesians 4, verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. And instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. You know, when I look at those, that first verse, bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of the TV shows that I brought up at the beginning of the message. I'm talking about going online and seeing all the accusations that are flying here and there and people's response to those accusations. And it all boils down to everybody's following one overriding rule called the prime directive. The second verse tells us what our Lord and Savior wants to be our response. To be kind to each other. To be tender-hearted. And to forgive one another, remembering our relationship with God. A relationship in which He forgave you and me and you and you and you and you. We can restore the joy in our relationship with God and we can restore the joy and the strength of our relationships with one another. 
We can have that guilt lifted. We can clear our conscience. All we need to do is to admit it, call it what it is, humbly go and ask forgiveness and work to become more like Jesus so that that sin decreases as our godliness increases. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we agree that we've been rebellious, that we've been focused too often upon ourselves and our own plans and our own agenda, our own success. We confess right here and now that our rebellion has hurt us and it's hurt others. We come to you broken and humble, knowing that we, on our own strength and our own abilities, cannot renew the joy and the strength of our relationship. We beg that you forgive our offenses, renew our hearts and our minds, delete our wicked acts, restore our relationship with you, refresh our thinking, give us back our peace of mind, remind us of your constant presence as we rely upon you in every aspect of our daily life. Assure us that in the days ahead that we know that we can always come to you in total honesty and that you will always respond faithfully with mercy and grace. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.